Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This sermon is taken from the 2014 Annual Missions Conference. This is the Sunday School service of Sunday the 1st of June 2014, entitled, I Am My Beloved's. And the Bible reading is taken from the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. Here's Dr. Steve Cook. Song of Solomon. Not many sermons uh, have are preached out of the Song of Solomon. And uh, I don't know if you've heard a message preached out of the Song of Solomon or not. How many of you have heard a Song of Solomon message? Okay. A few of you. Some of you haven't. Uh, I want you to turn to the seventh chapter. A while back, my pastor and my dear friend developed a brain tumor. And uh, he was only 57 years of age when he passed away. He and I had traveled to many countries together. I was his associate pastor for several years before becoming a senior pastor. His name was Bob Wilson. And Bob and I had a very close relationship. And I remember knocking on his door while he was ill. And his wife would come to the door. Her name was Bonnie. And I said, Bonnie, I said, can Bob come out and play? <laughs> Bob and I used to go out and play a lot of golf, but we also used to go to, to a restaurant to eat and just to fellowship, just to have a good time together. And she wouldn't let Bob go out with anyone except me. And uh, so I would get Bob and put him in a wheelchair and take him and put him in the car. During that time, I had come across a verse of Scripture <laughs> that just really spoke volumes to my heart. Uh, found here in the seventh chapter of the Song of Solomon. And, and Bob, as he was growing weaker and weaker, uh, was finally unable to even get out of bed. I went to the, uh, his bedside one day to share with him this verse of Scripture. In Song of Solomon, chapter 7, and verse 10. Let's read it together. I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me. Let's read it one more time. Very simple verse of Scripture. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would take... This time, Lord, as we meet together in this Sunday school hour, to look into your precious word. And Lord, though this is a missions conference, Lord, we realize that unless we fall in love with Jesus, we'll never be missionaries. We'll never have a passion and a burden for lost souls. We'll never be what you would have us to be apart from loving you and realizing your love for us. So this morning, Lord, I, it's my desire to bring a message that would focus mainly upon the love of Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we realize how much you love us, that it would move our hearts to have compassion for those that are lost. In Jesus' name. Amen. I am my beloved's and his desire 
is toward me. When I read that verse of Scripture, if, if words could speak, I believe that these words in this 10th verse of chapter 7 would be shouting at the top of their voice. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. What does that mean? Well, it's pregnant with meaning. It literally is. It, it's possibly one of the most wonderful verses of Scripture in the Word of God. When my dear friend was dying and I went to his bedside, I shared with him, I said, Brother Bob, I'm studying the Song of Solomon and I want you to hear this verse of Scripture. And when I read this verse of Scripture to him, he looked at me and smiled as only he could smile. Bob had such a wonderful smile. He said, what a wonderful verse. I said, well, Bob, I said, I believe that the Lord has given me this verse to share with you today. I am my beloved. You know, if you're dying, it's nice to know that you are your, the beloved. And his desire is toward us, toward me. And Bob looked at me and he said, I wonder what that word desire means. I said, I don't know. I'll have to study that out some more. I began writing a commentary on the Song of Solomon because of this verse. I, I began to look for other commentaries on the Song of Solomon and found very few. And some of the ones that I found weren't worth reading, to be honest with you. I didn't agree with them theologically. When you understand that the Song of Solomon is a special book, so, so oftentimes we hear people say, well, this is a love story, and it shows the love of Christ for the church. You've heard that? Well, that's an application. That's not the interpretation. When you study Scripture, I want you to understand, when you study Scripture, there can be only one interpretation. There can be many applications. But God is not the author of confusion. And so these, this idea that you talk to somebody and they say, well, that's how you interpret it, but I interpret it this way. Well, we both cannot be right. It's possible that neither one of us is right. But we both cannot be right. There can only be one interpretation of Scripture. There can be many applications. Now, if you want to make application concerning the relationship between Christ and the church, that's an application, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the context is always king. When you're studying the Bible, you need to know what is the context in which a passage or a book was written. Israel, the Bible said, had gone a-whoring after other gods. They had committed spiritual adultery. The nation of Israel wanted to be like all of the other Canaanites. They wanted a, they wanted a, a tall, dark, and handsome king. Later, they chose King Saul. They wanted to have all of these different things that the rest of the world had. But you see, we're different from the rest of the world as a church. 
as believers, as children of God, there ought to be a distinct difference between you and the world out here. You don't need to wear a, a pin on your lapel or a cross around your neck. You don't need to have a bumper sticker on your car that identifies you as a Christian. People ought to recognize there's something peculiar about you. There's something different. The Song of Solomon was written by King Solomon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of the Song of Solomon was to provide an object lesson of how they ought to be faithful. There are three people in the Song of Solomon that you need to understand as the major players, if you will, the main cast. You have a Shulamite maiden, a young maiden, a Shulamite. We don't have a name for her. She's just called the Shulamite. And she is in love with a shepherd who loves her. But she is being compelled to be unfaithful by a wicked king. And this king attempts to seduce the Shulamite in order that she might become part of his harem. Keep in mind, this was written by Solomon, a man who had 300 wives and 700 concubines. He had a thousand woman harem. God didn't approve of that. But yet, Solomon is known as the man who's the wisest of all men in the Bible. I, I question that when you think about having a thousand woman harem. I, uh, you know, I, I, it, it's everything I can do to make my wife happy every day. And I have one wife, you know. Gareth, you need to remember that, okay? <laughs> so the Song of Solomon was written as an object lesson for the nation of Israel. It wasn't written to the church. Why? The church was hidden in God at that time. It was a mystery. Had not yet been revealed. So how can the Song of Solomon be written specifically to the church? It couldn't, because the church was still a mystery. Now, we know that all these things are given for our examples and so forth, and, and all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable, and I can tell you all of those verses, and I agree with that. Make no mistake about it. But let's look at the context for a moment. The Shulamite was in love with the shepherd, and the king wanted her to become part of his harem. There's three people here. I was taught growing up in a Baptist church, independent Baptist church, that this was that the king and the shepherd were the same person. I disagree with that. That's why it took me six years to write this commentary. Halfway through, I said, you know what? The king and the shepherd are not the same person. Absolutely not. And when I realized more and more the context of this, I believe God gave me understanding and discernment. And so I had to begin writing the Song of Solomon commentary all over again. Now, there's a lot of common ground. But keep in mind, you have a Shulamite, you have a shepherd, and you have a king. The Shulamite, even though she is tempted by the world, by the king, she remains faithful 
to her shepherd. Israel had been tempted by the world and had become unfaithful. God wanted them to do like the Shulamite, even under temptation, be faithful to whom you are espoused. Now, application. The church today, we're espoused to Christ. The wedding hasn't taken place yet, Will. It will. It sure will after the rapture. And we're going to be wed to Christ. Now, the espousal in Jewish mentality is as good as a wedding, really. It's already a done deal. And so we can make application. And we can say, yes, we are espoused to the great shepherd. But there's a God of this world who is seducing us as we walk this pilgrim way. The God of this world is not Jesus Christ. It's Satan. The Bible says that, that he is the God of this world and that he has blinded the eyes of them that believe not lest they should believe in the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that there is coming a day when Christ will return and he will defeat the Antichrist and the false prophet. Satan will be cast into a bottomless pit and Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years upon this earth. But that hasn't happened yet. So, there is no fatherhood of God and there is no brotherhood of man. You're not my brother unless you're born into the same family I am. And that's the family of God. Jesus told those that were unsaved, that Satan was their father. He's a liar and the father of all lies. So, if we are being tempted by the God of this world, if we are being tempted by the flesh, if we are being tempted by the world as a whole, we need to learn from this story. God says, I, or excuse me, the, the Shulamite says, I am my beloved's and his desires toward me. Let's look at that verse, this one verse. And I'll be honest with you, a half an hour probably is not enough time to do it justice. But let's look at this one verse. And I want to bring four parallel truths from this one verse of Scripture. What is the first truth that I find? Number one, our relationship is personal. Our relationship to Christ is personal. Notice, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward who? Me. That's personal. I and me. Personal pronouns. And it's important for you and I to understand that our relationship is not a religion it's a relationship. I was one time asked by a Muslim, what is the difference between Islam and Christianity? And I said, well, you really don't want to know the answer. This was in a juvenile prison in the United States. He said, well, I hear you're a preacher. He said, answer that question for me, if you're a preacher. I said, very simple. One is a religion. The other is a relationship. I came into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ 42 years ago. On January 2nd, 1940, 1972, I became a child of God. I repented of my sins. I called upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save me from my sin. I believed in my heart that he and he alone 
died according to the scripture, was buried and rose again also according to the scripture. And when I trusted Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit entered and dwelled me, sealed me, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, till the day of redemption. That's personal. Nobody could get saved for me. Mom, dad couldn't get saved for me. My, my grandparents couldn't get saved for me. I entered into a personal relationship. Look at John 6, 44. And let's look at five personal aspects of our salvation relationship in Jesus Christ. In John 6, 44, we find that there has to be, number one, a personal conviction. Notice the Bible says, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him. You see how personal that is? You can't get saved apart from the hearing of God's word. You can't get saved apart from the drawing of the Holy Spirit. No man can come unto me, Jesus says, except my Father which sent me, draw him. You see all three aspects of the Trinity in that particular verse. You see God the Father who sent God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit draws men, women, boys, and girls unto Christ the Son. You can't have salvation apart from all three. Secondly, there has to be personal confession. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. For without, with the mouth, the Bible says, confession is made into salvation. With the heart, we know through the heart, the Bible says. Let me read that second part of that verse. It says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. There has to be a personal conviction. There has to be a personal confession. Can't be saved apart from repentance, my friend. I know a lot of churches, say, oh, if you just sign your name on the dotted line and you get baptized while you're going to heaven, you'll be a sorry sinner in hell if that's what you believe. That's not scriptural. Thirdly, there has to be a personal calling. Romans 10, verse 13. The Bible says, for whosoever shall what? Call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, signing your name on a dotted line, getting water baptized, that's not salvation. That's works. You can't get saved by works. The Bible's very clear about that. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when you come in here and you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, and, and you come to a, a, a point in your life where you recognize yourself as a lost sinner undone on your way to a devil's hell, then you can come before the throne of God and find grace to help in time of need. Make no mistake about it. You can be saved for whosoever. Doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you came from. Grace is so interesting. Sin can't hurt it. And good works can't help it. God's grace is so amazing, not a thing you can do to help it or hurt it. When you call upon the name of the Lord, you have God's word that you'll be saved. If you call from the heart, not from the head. Fourthly, there has to be a personal consecration. Romans 6, turn to Romans 6. This is one of the most Wonderful verses in the book of Romans. And so many times people overlook 
Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. But God be thanked, Paul says, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Look at verse 17 again. But God be thanked, Paul says, that you were the servants of sin. But listen what he says now. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. You have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Doctrine, that's preaching. You can't be saved apart from the word of God. And so, Paul says, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart. What does that mean, to obey from the heart? You obeyed from the heart by doing that which the Bible says you need to do. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. Call upon the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. That's not religion, that's a relationship. You have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was what? Delivered unto you. It has to be a preacher. There has to be a preacher preach. There has to be the word of God which is being preached. There has to be the spirit of God which takes the word of God and penetrates your heart, draws men and women, boys and girls unto Christ. And then there has to be a decision on your part to obey or disobey. Sin's not the issue. Your sin has been paid for in full. For God so loved the world, didn't he? He gave his only begotten son. The next verse, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. How can they be saved? He died, he paid the price of every sin. But the next verse, John three eighteen, he that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he hath not believed on the only begotten Son of God. People die and go to hell because of unbelief, not because of all of the different things you've done wrong. My sins have been paid for. When? 2,000 years ago. Well, what about the sins you commit tomorrow? Hey, 2,000 years ago, all of my sin was in the future. But the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to pay for that sin 2,000 years ago, as well as for all the sin before 2,000 years ago. The sin of Adam and Eve was paid for on the cross. How about that? He's the only means of salvation. He's the only means of atonement. So there has to be a personal conviction, a personal confession, personal calling, personal consecration, and lastly, there's a personal covenant. John 3.36. In John 3.36, we see that personal covenant that comes from obeying the gospel from the heart. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You see, if we believe if we trust in Christ, if we enter into that personal relationship with the Lord, we have the promise of everlasting life. But without it, the wrath of God. First parallel truth, our relationship is personal, pictured by the two personal pronouns, I and me. 
I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Second personal uh, truth, parallel truth of our relationship. Our relationship is not only personal, but it's present. Present. Notice, I am my beloved's. His desire is toward me. Am and is. These are present tense verbs. It's not I'm going to be. It's not one day I shall be. The writer of Song of Solomon 7.10 says, I am presently, right now, my beloved. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? As I said, grace is so amazing. It's amazing that they sing a song called Amazing Grace. Your sin can't hinder it. Your good works can't help it. You see, our relationship is present. And this is true for every child of God. There's not this um, process that you have to enter or engage in where finally you reach that uh, second work of grace some churches teach about. That you have to enter that that utopia of perfection, if you will. There are religions that taste that. Uh, you can trust Jesus Christ, but unless you speak in tongues, well, then you're not truly a child of God. That's a damnable heresy, the Bible calls it. That's a false doctrine, a doctrine of devils. Paul calls it another gospel. It's not the gospel. There's only one gospel, and that's Jesus died according to the Scripture, was buried, and rose again also according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. Apart from that, you have a works-based salvation. Remember Adam and Eve? They had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel brought sacrifice to God. Remember that story? And Cain brought a, a fruit, and Abel brought a flock. Cain brought the works of his hands. Abel brought a substitute. Every religion falls under the way of Cain or the way of Abel. Either what you believe will guarantee you eternal life, forgiveness of sin, home in heaven, either you believe that that is only made possible by a substitutionary sacrifice, a blood atonement on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, or you believe that you have to be like Cain and bring forth the works of your own hand. You see the difference? Every religion today follows the tenets of one of those two ways. The Bible says very clearly, our relationship is personal, but it's also present. When I got saved, I got all the Holy Spirit I'm ever going to get. question is, does he get all of me? Turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1. And in 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, we see three stages if you will, of our redemption. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, 
But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Now, did you notice the tense of those verbs? He says, number one, who delivered us. That's past. Then he says, from so great a death, and doth deliver. Doth is a present tense verb. And then he says, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. That's future. In other words, Paul's saying we were saved from the penalty of sin, from the moment that we trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. And as we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification. And then, one of these days, bless God, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. That's glorification. So we see three different tenses there of the verb, and that's why the Bible later on says, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. I was saved, I'm being saved, one day I will be saved forever. The fact of the matter is, I was justified 42 years ago when I trusted Christ. I was saved from the penalty of sin. As I grow in the grace and knowledge, I'm sanctified. I become more and more like Christ. And then one day, praise God, I'll be glorified as I'm safe in the very presence of sin. Now, I'm just as secure from the moment I trusted Christ as I will be when I'm set, sitting at the throne of Christ. But the fact of the matter is, there is a process that must go on in order for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and to, and to become more and more sanctified so that others can see Christ in us, the hope of glory. The, day, the first day I got saved, I couldn't have preached the message. And some people still say, he can't preach a message. I had a guy one day, he said, how many times did you preach over there in, in the Philippines? And I said, oh, I tried to preach many times, but I don't know if I preached any. As a young child of God, we have a lot of zeal, but we also must have a lot of knowledge to go along with it so that we don't do more damage than we do good. Thirdly, there's a third parallel truth. Not only is our relationship personal and present, it's possessive. I am my beloved. You see how possessive that is? It's not your beloved, it's my beloved. You know? It's like little kids arguing over a toy. That's not your toy, it's my toy. No, it's my toy, it's my toy. We can both say, if we've both been saved, we can both say, he is my beloved, praise God. And his desire is toward me. You see, that's possessive. That's possessive. And I'm glad to know that because, praise the Lord, when I'm going through a valley or a trial of life, it's so wonderful to know that I have a God who knows me. One day, when I stand before the throne, my desire is that he would say, well done, a good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of the Lord. I know he will tell me to enter into the joys. I just hope he says, well done. But to some, he's going to say, depart from me, ye worker of iniquity. 
I never knew you. We talk about knowing the Lord, but one day he's going to tell some, I never knew you. So how important is it that he knows who we are? I am my beloved's and his desires toward me, praise God. He knows me by name. He knows everything that I do. And that's a frightening thought because I'm not perfect. Spend some time with me, you'll see. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But I want to be perfect. I want to be more Christ-like. I want others to see Christ in me. God made many promises in the Word of God to his children. We know that God promises us a place. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Praise God. He's promised us a wonderful place one day. He's also promised to take us away. For the Lord himself shall descend with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. We which are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Preachers, uh, or, uh, one person asked me one time, Preacher, how come the dead rise first? I said, they got six more feet to go. Amen. That's all I know. Thirdly, there's other promises that we could talk about. He's promised us an earnest of our salvation, a down payment, if you will. What's the down payment of your salvation? Well, that's the Holy Spirit. You're sealed with the earnest of your salvation. I know that I'm saved. You know why? Because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within me. Before I got saved, I used to do something wrong, bad, and then I'd feel guilty about it. You remember a time in your life like that? You did something and felt guilty for doing it? After I got saved, I felt guilty before I ever did it. That's the difference. The Holy Spirit is there to convict me of my sin before I ever commit it. And I need to be obedient to that conviction lest God's hand of judgment, chastisement fall upon us. God promises never to leave us nor forsake us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David writes, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me, thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. The Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But then we find out he also says in that same chapter, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper, and I shall not fear what men shall do unto me. These are promises, personal promises that we possess as God's children. Fourth truth, I am my beloved's. That word beloved's is a very beautiful word. It's a term of endearment. You know, I love all of you women in here, but there's only one woman on planet Earth that is my beloved, and that's my wife. It's a term of endearment. We can call the Lord our beloved because he loves us so, because he cares for us so. The Bible is very clear about the love of God especially to his own. 
The Shulamite, this lady in the Song of Solomon, she was chosen by her beloved. He had redeemed her. He had manifested his love to her in many ways, and he had made special promises to her. Cannot we say the same thing about the Lord Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ has chosen us. He has redeemed us. He has manifested his love to us. He has made precious promises to us. There's a song that says, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the mighty gulf. Oh, the grace, rather, that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. As wonderful as that word, beloved, is, I want you to look at the second half of that verse. Remember, I told you the story of my pastor saying, I wonder what the word desire means. I said, well, Brother Bob, I'll have to go do some more studying, and I'll have to find out what that word means. And so I did. The Shulamite says, his desire is toward me. His desire. We're talking about the creator of all that there is. His desire is toward me. It's toward you. It's toward us. What does that mean, that word desire? And I, and I looked up that word desire. Look here. Look at this. The word desire in the Song of Solomon 17. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Here's what the word desire means. To stretch out. There's no greater evidence of God's love than when he stretched out on Calvary. I am my beloved. And his desire, which means to stretch out, is toward me. The Lord stretched out to show his love for you. We're talking about missions this week. Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth me. That word constraineth means to wall in, like a bowling ball wobbling down a gutter. If it goes left or right, left or right, the wall pushes it back to where it belongs in the middle. Paul says the love of Christ constrains him, walls him in. He didn't say it was his love for Christ, but Christ's love for him is what motivated him. And Paul was perhaps the greatest missionary that ever lived on earth. Why was Paul a missionary? Because he knew something of the love of God for him. And the Shulamite writes, I am my beloved's. It's personal. It's present, it's possessive, it's precious. His desire is toward me. I, I Listen, after I, I realize what God has done for me in the person of his dear son, I must, I am constrained to give my life to God, to tell others about Jesus Christ and his love. 
Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you, Lord, how you have shown us and shown us and shown us so many times and in so many ways, Father. And Lord, may your love constrain us to be better missionaries, to be more faithful, to do whatever we can to warn the lost, to lift up our voice like a trumpet and compel the lost to come in from the highways, from the hedges, from wherever. And may you get glory for yourself and all this done through Bethel Free Baptist Church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. 